0: today, just to get a kind of a gauge of who's in the room, how many of you guys are college students, currently college students, or entering seniors, you know, next fall you'll be entering college students, raise your hands high, okay, how many of you guys are high school students? I don't understand why that's more exciting, but I like that. Yes, my wife. My wife's. Uh, her name is Grace Kim. She is not Korean. She's blonde-haired, as blonde as they come. We're going to have a baby in just about five months here, and I'm a little worried because I'm worried that it's going to have my features, you know, my Asian slanty eyes and big nose and her blonde hair. So I'm a little worried. <laughs> so if you can commit Meet a prayer for the next five months. I'd greatly appreciate that. But anyway, let's get back into the spirit a little bit here. So, Father, we just present ourselves before you. Father, we just lay our hearts open bare. That we would be able to hear your words today. What you would speak to us, Father, we ask you to give us discernment in this hour of what you're speaking to the church what You're speaking to young adults, Father, what You're speaking to this nation. Father, we, we don't come presumptuous, believing that we know all things, but God, we ask You to reveal Your heart to us in this season, God. What You would have for the college campuses, the high school campuses, for 2008, 2009, 2010 and beyond. Father, we ask You for clarity. We ask You for discernment. We ask You for understanding and wisdom. God, I ask you even specifically for students from California. God, we lift up the students from California before you, God. We say that we are in desperate need of your mercy, in desperate need of your grace, God, in desperate need of revival, Father, to turn the tide in California on our college campuses. From coast to coast, God. From north border to south border. Lord, we say we come before You, Father. We say that we do not know all things, but Lord, we trust in Your sovereignty today. We trust in Your voice today, God. We trust in the prophetic Word. Lord, we ask You to bring it forth in 2008. Revival on every single college campus, Father, in this nation. We ask You to bring it forth, God. That which man can do, not do on his own, Father, we ask You to bring it forth in 2008 that the strong right arm of God would be revealed in this nation, God. We ask You to do something greater than what You did in the Jesus movement, God. We ask You to do something in this nation, Father, that would turn the hearts of even the skeptics, Father, turn even the hearts of atheist professors, God, We ask You to turn the hearts of Muslim students, Father. We ask You to turn, God, the best and the brightest in this nation. God, we ask You, give us revival in 2008, God. We say, apart from You, there is no good thing, God. Apart from You, there is no good thing, God. Our programs, Lord, our activity, our ideas, Father, apart from You, there is no good thing, God, we ask You to shine forth Your light in 2008, God. We ask You to shine it forth on college campuses. Lord, I ask specifically for 500,000 souls to be saved on the college campuses. Father, we say it's too small, God. The college campuses are too small that they should be swept away in human we ask You, We ask You to manifest Your Son, God. We say that the hour has now come. We say the hour has now come, God. Glorify Your Son. That You may be glorified in Jesus' name. I believe that we're probably in the most critical juncture of our nation's history. I believe that God is setting before us even now, and I apologize for coming out like this right from the get-go, but I believe that God is setting before us, even right now as the people of God in this nation, as, as young adults in this nation, that He's setting before us two pathways, both dynamic, but He's setting before us two pathways that would reveal His Son to us. And I believe, I remember hearing Mike Bickle say it in the call in Las Vegas, that he believes that there is a military invasion. He says, I promise you, there is a military invasion scheduled for this nation. But at the same time, if the people of God would cry out to Him in mercy, crying out to Him, pleading in His mercy and in His grace... That God would divert that, that scheduled invasion and He would send revival instead. And I believe that we are in a crossroads in this nation. 2008 is quickly becoming the battlefield for the soul of this generation. I believe if you look at the elections, if you look at the state of Christianity in our churches with scandals... If you look at the statistics even of college students, where college population is skyrocketing at this point, but at the same time while we're seeing some kind of growth of evangelism on the college campuses, we're seeing a decline of spiritual activity. We're seeing a decline of people who hold the biblical worldview on our college campuses. So I believe that we're at a critical juncture of our nation's history and set before us are two pathways, both revival and judgment. And God intends to have a purified bride in this nation. He intends to bring in a great, a great sweep of souls into the kingdom in this nation. And, and the verse that's been in my heart for the past couple of months now has just been resounding inside of me. I can't get away from it. It's something that echoes inside the chambers of my heart. Is Isaiah 59, 19. It says, From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, His name will be made great. The fear of God would be made great in the nations. And then it says this, When the enemy comes in like a flood, there God will raise up a standard to resist the onslaught of the enemy, to resist the attack on this generation. And it's been something that's been... uh bubbling up inside of my heart the past couple of months, because I believe that apart from God, we have no solution to the crisis facing our nation. And if you don't think there's a crisis in this nation, I think we need to wake up to the call that God's calling us to, because if you look across the board, across the landscape of American Christianity in this generation, all we're seeing is scandal, all we're seeing is better programs, better ideas, but lack of fruit. But I believe that a generation is rising that's saying no to this kind of mentality, that's saying no to this kind of... uh... Of, of laziness and spiritual apathy, because here's the question. The question is not what is emerging in churches today. The question is not what is the next idea of community or what is the next idea of what, what the expression of Christianity is going to look like. The next question for us is this. Are we preparing ourselves for Jesus to return to the planet Earth? Knowing that a series of revival or a series of judgment is scheduled for this nation. You have to ask yourself this question, am I prepared? Am I preparing others around me with the voice that God's given to me? Whether it's two or three or four or five hundred, five thousand or five hundred thousand. The question you have to ask yourself is how am I using that voice in this present hour? Because in Ezekiel 22 verse 30, it's a verse that many of you know, but I want this verse to pierce your heart. I want it to pierce the very soul of who you are this, uh, this afternoon. You guys turn there with me. I know that many of you guys know it, but I want you guys to be familiar and comfortable with flipping the pages of Scripture because what you have in front of you is the Word of God. You have to understand that this book that you have in front of you is not just another history textbook. It's not another educational resource. This book that you have in front of you is the Word of God, the present tense Word of God. And as such, it should be treated as such. Don't approach the Word of God as if it's just another book it's just another idea, or it's just five chapters that you need to get through every day to to, to satisfy the religious quotient inside of your heart to say, I've accomplished the duty of Christianity today. Present yourselves before the Word of God as the very Word of God itself. Because this is not the words of Shakespeare. This is not the words of Billy Graham. This is not the words of Dostoevsky. I say this sometimes, and my friends always afterwards say, "Why do you use Dostoevsky? Nobody knows what Dostoevsky. Who Dostoevsky is? You college students. I hope you know who Dostoevsky is. This is the word of God. You see, a lot of times." When we present ourselves before in a service or a church meeting, we're we're, we're waiting to hear the newest idea that the preacher is going to bring before you. But I want to declare today that there's nothing I can add to the Scriptures. There's nothing that I can add to the Word of God that's more profound, more applicable to your own lives. That this is the Word of God. So present yourselves humbly before it even today as we read. Don't look to what I can say today, but listen to what the Word of God says for itself. So I want us to read this together. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. And Ezekiel, if you understand, he's, he's, he's prophesying in probably the most devastating hour of Israel's history. They've been ransacked. They've been destroyed. And the best and the brightest in their nation, Daniel the prophet even, was taken from the midst of Jerusalem, taken from the midst of Israel and Judah, taken all the way back to Babylon to a foreign god. And Ezekiel is also taken back in one of these, uh, these exiles, or one of these, you know, whatever you call them, captivity, seasons of captivity. And he's prophesying and he's giving the heart of God into the matter. And he's saying this, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall. I want to say that again. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it. But the very next phrase, let this verse strike your soul, let it haunt you. Because I believe that we're in a similar situation in this nation, that if we do not respond to the call of God, to prayer fasting, repentance, if we do not respond to the call of God to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the purpose of God in this generation, I tell you what, God will say this of you in this generation. May it never be said of this generation, the next phrase that I'm about to read, but I found no one. May it never be said of this generation that God did not find an intercessor. With all of our religious activity and all of our programs of evangelism, feeding the poor, prophecy, healing, and now those are all good things, but you have to understand God is looking for a friend who will throw themselves in the gap and say, God, no! God have mercy! So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. I want to say to you guys sitting in this room today, there is no wiser decision that you can make for your own self, for your college campus, for your high school campus, for your church, for your youth group, for your city, for your community, for this nation. There is no greater calling or no greater vocation that you can give yourself to than the ministry of intercession in this hour. I believe, and I'm just one human being, but I believe that the corporate word for the hour right now is to gather together. Is to gather together and seek His face. I believe that the corporate word for the hour is Malachi 1.10 where it says, Oh, that there would be someone who would shut the doors that they would not kindle all fire on my altar in vain. Because the very next verse in Malachi one hundred eleven, Jesus has a plan for the earth that His name would be made great among the nations. He has a plan for a worship movement that would reach the ends of the earth, from, 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 what, from the west to the east, from the north to the south. Every nation, every city. It says in Malachi one hundred eleven from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, My name shall be made great among the nations. In every city, in every region, it says, incense shall be offered. In every city, in every nation, incense, the ministry of prayer and worship will be offered. Listen, this is where the church is headed at the end of the age. This is where the church is headed at the end of the age. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, a verse that many of you guys that are are interested in prayer, may know very well, it says Jesus, or Isaiah is prophesying the heart of God, and He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. When God is speaking about His own people, and the function that His people should live in, He doesn't say, My house shall be called a house of feeding the poor. He doesn't say, My house shall be called a house of prophecy. He doesn't say, My house shall be called a house of evangelism. He says, At the end of the day, He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And the people of God have to grab a hold of this reality that God intends for His people to be a praying people. In Matthew 21, after Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem on His way to be crucified, to establish His, Himself again and to, to assert His authority against the usurper of the earth, Satan. Days before He's about to enter or walk on to Golgotha and be crucified. Just days before, he walks into the temple of God. And it's a story that many of you guys know well, and you guys might think, wow, that's an intense Jesus. But he walks into the temple, and he looks at the money changers. He looks at all the activity, and all the programs of the temple. And Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, turns over the temples, kicks over the tables. Turns over the tables and kicks them over. And I believe that what Jesus was doing in Matthew 21 was He was establishing the culture that was supposed to take place in the New Testament. And He kicks over the tables. He's overthrowing the old order. The old guard, he's saying, this is the way that the people of God are going to be reoriented. Jesus himself, out of his very own mouth, prophesied, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Listen, this is not a good idea. Prayer, gathering together is not a good idea. This is our only method of rescuing a generation in crisis. This is our only method of saving a generation that the Lord has given to us. Listen, this is the only method that the Lord has given to us to save this generation. We have no hope apart from Jesus. We have no solution. There is no good idea or good program that's going to save this generation. Jesus himself has to step into the scene and say, No more! So, I just want to share with you guys a little bit out of Joel 2. If you guys will turn with me there. Because I believe that this is the strategy that the Lord's given to us to respond to the crisis of this hour. To give you guys a little bit of context, Joel was a prophet who likely prophesied maybe 20, 30, 40 years that within a generation of the darkest hour of Israel's history when Nebuchadnezzar would come in, ransack the nation, steal the best and the brightest from the land and take them back to a foreign land to serve a foreign god. Joel is prophesying because... What happens in Joel 1, before we even step into Joel 2, but what happens in Joel 1 is is Joel is looking at the crisis that's just touched his nation of locusts that have come and consumed the vegetation. And you have to understand, Israel was an agrarian society, a society of farming. and, And it's the way they found their livelihood. But locusts had come and devastated everything. All the crops were devastated. The people were starving. And Joel is looking at that in Joel 1, verse 13. He gives the first prescription. He says, guys, look. Look what's happened to our nation. Gird yourselves and lament. Lie all night and weep between porch and altar. Even after the crisis has come, Joel is warning his folks and saying, guys, there's something right around the corner. There's something coming right around the corner that's far worse Than even the locusts that have come and consumed our crops. And I want to say to you guys today boldly, though you may not understand it yet, I want to say to you guys boldly that there is a crisis right around the corner in this nation. Far greater. the, The enemy is planning something for this nation that's far more devastating than anything the earth has yet seen. A man that's known as the Antichrist will emerge onto the scene and will be the most wicked man and perverse man that's ever walked the earth. He will come onto the scene and begin to devastate the nations. But God has a holy prescription when it seems like there is no hope when it seems like there is no remedy, God still has an ace up His his sleeve. And this is that. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call the sacred assembly, Joel 2.15. That this is the prescription of God for a generation that's going to hell in a handbasket. College students. Only a few years ago, I was a college student. I remember walking my campus and thinking, God, there is no hope for the godlessness that's touched our college campus. And I know many of you have felt that loneliness. Where you're just one of just 10 or 20, or even one of 500 on a college campus of 50,000. That's giving themselves to prayer and fasting for revival on their college campuses. I know that feeling of despair. I know that feeling of loneliness. But I tell you what, God has given to us a blueprint to follow. There is no blueprint apart from this, guys. There is no strategy, there's no plan B. God's given us his prescription, and this is what he says. Verse 12. Actually, let's start at verse 1. It's blow the trumpet in Zion. And we have to understand that, you know, a lot of us might be familiar with Joel 2.15, where it's blow the trumpet in Zion, create a fast, and call a sacred assembly. In Numbers 10, it gives the... the, the um, what am, what's the word I'm looking for? It gives the rationale between... Behind, the two reasons... That God has ordained for us to blow the trumpet in this nation, or in Israel at the time. The first being a military invasion, when they begin to see the enemy nation surrounding them, they blow the trumpet. The other time, the only other prescription to blow the trumpet, to call the nation in any way, is to call them to fast and prayer. And we have to understand that there's not one trumpet in Joel 2, there's two. Joel one is the first trumpet. It's blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Listen guys, this is not just some good song that you dance to. This is a reality that Joel was prophesying up. He was saying, guys, there's something coming. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm. Let something inside of you wake up from the spiritual lethargy and apathy from the, a nation dying all around you. From your college campuses dying all around you. Wake yourself up. There's a crisis coming if we don't gather ourselves and pray. If we don't gather together and seek His face, that He might send revival. And so we see in verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand. And in verse 2 through 11, it describes an army. A fierce army. That's not Joel's army, by the way. But a fierce army. But if you jump to verse 11... Probably one of the most shocking revelations for the nation of Israel at the time. When Joel was prophesying, he says this, And the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? it?" Joel is describing a military invasion that's so fierce that Israel is thinking, My goodness, what is that which is coming right around the corner? But Joel stands there and he says, but guys, you don't get it. Your greatest enemy is not the military invasion. Your greatest enemy is not Muslim militants. Your greatest enemy is not your liberal, humanistic professors. Your greatest enemy is not scandals. Your greatest enemy is God Himself. And we have to catch this. In the West, we might not understand this, Because we've been fed fed cotton candy religion. Fills you up, but it's no substance. But if you read all throughout the prophets, we begin to see that it's, it's not man or the enemy or the foreign nations invading that's our greatest enemy. We begin to see that God is setting Himself against the stubborn people. Not because He hates us, but because He desires to have all of our heart. And verse 12 makes this clear, and he says, this is the prescription. You know what's coming right around the corner, and he says, verse 12, Now therefore, that's good news. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. This is phase one. Turn to God with all your heart. Joel is emphasizing that which Jesus would call the greatest commandment in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is Joel's call to a people, and I want to say this to you guys today, that this is our hope, that if we will turn to God with all of our heart, Not 98%, not ninety-nine point nine 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 percent God wants everything. God wants our whole heart. In Exodus 33, it says, God is a jealous God. He desires it all. When you think of a jealous God, you think, well, you compare Him. You, com- you begin to compare God to your own jealousy, the jealous feelings that you have of another person who has something that you don't. You know, it's not that kind of jealousy, but God is saying, I want everything. I want it all. I want 100% of your heart. And He's not saying, "I like, give me all or I'll take nothing. But He's saying, guys, I'm going to do everything I can do and shake everything that can be shaken. Hebrews 12, Haggai. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken. Why? For one purpose, you guys. It's not so that He can demonstrate how awesome He is. It's not so He can demonstrate how powerful and terrible He is. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken because He wants to break all the chains. Every single chain that would hinder love. That's God's ultimate intention in all of this. That in all the drama of human history, He wants to shake everything that can be shaken. Why? So that He can have your entire heart. He says, now therefore turn to Me. With all your heart, and he gives you he tells us how to do it. He says with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. It's what Mike talked about this afternoon, the Sermon on the Mount. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, the beatitudes. The the, the prescription that he's given to us. That we need to look at our own sin, that we need to look at our own spiritual condition of lethargy and apathy. And we need to begin to, to weep and to mourn. To shed tears over the sinfulness of our own hearts. That this is one of the hardest things that we can do is verse 13. Surrend your heart and not your garments. That we can rend all of our outer works that we can rend all of the superficial things that everybody else sees. Well, yeah, I know I got a little bit of anger. I know I'm struggling with lust. Everybody knows that. But God's saying, I want to get to the heart of the matter. I want you to rend it all. And if there's a better translation of this or a more, a more uh, easy to understand translation of this is to tear it, it's going to be painful, you guys. But we need to come to the place that we say, God, we want You to have everything, anything that hinders love. God, kick away all the obstacles, all the props. Remove them from our hearts. And God's saying, examine yourselves. Rend your hearts. Tear your hearts in this season. For all of your hidden sins, for pornography in your dorm rooms. And we think that's the big sin, but God, God makes it clear anger, outbursts of wrath, dissensions, all of these things. We we've because we've become such a hyper sexualized culture, we focus on lust and sexual activity alone. But I want us to examine even the things that we don't think are that bad. Begin to examine your anger, your snappy attitudes. Lying, deceit, exaggeration. Wholeheartedness, friends. Wholeheartedness. This is what it takes, is that we need to tear our hearts. It's a violent tearing. We need to... Tear our hearts in the place of how we spend our time. Spending three hours in front of video games and movies. Spending 15 minutes in prayer. And reading the Word. We need to re-examine the way that we're spending our time. We need to re-examine. And I, and I know that this is a, an interesting... Uh, I know we called it revival praying. And I told Carrie before, I, I duped them. I got them in here because everybody likes revival. But I believe that this is the method, the praxis, that God has given to us. Our time, how we spend our time matters to God. God wants all of our hearts. This is not just a matter of lust and anger, but this is a matter of time, how we're spending it, how we're squandering that which God has given to us to advance the kingdom in this nation. Our money. Some of you guys struggle to give $100 in the offering plate when it passes by. And you say, well, God didn't tell me to do it. God didn't really tell me to, to give $100. When you walked into the Apple store and bought that $300 iPod, did God tell you to give Apple $300 to buy that iPod? We laugh, but examine your hearts. Matthew makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Some of us need to get out of Apple and begin to sow into the kingdom. I I don't know why I'm saying this, but I challenge some of you young people, even tonight, when they give the offering call, some of you have never given even $1,000 once in your life. Some of you guys are saying, I only have $1,000. I want to challenge some of you young people tonight. When the offering plate comes around tonight, I don't know why I'm saying this. Give a thousand dollars. Write that thousand dollar check. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Two hundred dollar jeans. You think you don't have a problem with money. Three hundred dollar iPods. Fifty thousand dollar cars. Well, is it wrong to have a six-figure salary? No, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a six-figure salary. But I tell you what, there are missionaries in lack and in want overseas that are not able to go to the field because we're not supporting them. Let that strike you. Let that strike you. In Japan alone, it costs $2 million. It costs $2 million to save one person. It costs about $2 million in Switzerland for the efforts of missionaries in those nations to present the gospel to one person who would receive Jesus into their hearts. Let that strike you. You think you don't have a problem with money. Our speech... The way we talk, our sarcasm, our coarse jesting, our idle speech. I don't even know what idle speech means, you guys. All I know is God's serious about it. He says you will be held accountable for every idle speech, for coarse jesting. That's not locker room talk alone, you guys. How we talk to one another matters before God. And we think lust is the big issue. Examine your ways. Examine your heart. How you talk to your friends. Sarcasm. Coarse jesting. Inappropriate language. This is one that's getting me all the time. Gossip. Slander. Backbiting. Talking about someone when they're not there in a negative manner. I remember Alan Hood talking about this once. He said, gossip is this. Talking about someone when they're not there. And slander is this. Talking about someone when they're not there in a negative manner. It's as simple as that. How are we speaking of one another? Are we exhorting, edifying, building up? Or are we tearing down with our words? How does this have to do with revival praying? Because it matters when we come before the Lord. Our eyes. But I do not want to relegate sin to lust. I fear, and I know that it's a big issue. I know it's a big problem. I know that many of you are struggling with pornography in this room. Leaders. Leaders. But I want, to sm- I want to be clear today that lust alone is not just pornography, but it's the second glances. It's the posture of our hearts desiring in, a, in an ungodly manner. We need to bring and beat our body into submission in this way. Guys, I'm telling you guys something. We need to to manage our time we need to manage our money we need to manage our eyes and we need to manage our speech that is not just coming on Sunday mornings it's not just coming on Friday nights or Wednesday nights to your church service and offering up lip service before the Lord God is saying oh that someone would shut the doors that you would not kindle kindle fire in my altar in vain the way we carry our hearts matters but look at this Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful. It's not cause he's angry, you guys. It's not cause he's mad. Listen to the nature of God. He's gracious and merciful. When's the last time you felt his grace? When's the last time you experienced it and encountered it? Experienced his grace for real not just in doctrine and understanding, but you say, Oh God, I'm a sinner. And God extends His grace and His mercy and you begin to worship Him out of the overflow. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. I want to say today that Though I sound angry, I'm not. And God's not angry with you. I know some of you young people have probably struggled with this in your heart, where you say, I need to do more, I need to do better, I need to do this and that, because God's hanging over me with a baseball bat, and He's going to whack me in the head if I don't do this. I know a lot of people, I know you Asian kids have that mentality. Where if you underperform, and if you don't do certain things that you know you're supposed to do, we laugh, but we know it's the truth. I don't want to single the Asians out. I know everybody, white people, black people, everybody. So, all the Asian people can relax a little bit right now. But I want you to know something God's not angry with us, He's slow to anger. He's good, He's merciful. He's of great kindness. What does that mean? Have you experienced the great kindness of God? Really experienced the full assurance of salvation in our own hearts. That there's nothing you can do to separate you from God. That there's no, you know what I mean by that. (laughs) Don't reject Him. Verse 14, who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And that's the great perhaps of God, what we like to call the great perhaps. Who knows? God is saying, come, present yourselves before me. He's leaving. Up. He's not saying that this is some kind of formula, and equation. He's saying, guys, press into me. Press into me with all of your hearts. Who knows what that market, who knows what that Kairos moment is when you've done it. When you've your hearts, when you come before Him, rending your hearts and not just your garments, when you've come before Him, leaning into His sovereignty, into His mercy, into His kindness, into His goodness, when is that time? Who knows? God's not saying it won't come, but He's saying press into Me. It's an invitation to press in. This is the pathway to revival on our college campuses. 2008. 2008. I am believing. I, I have written down in my computer journal, 2008 is the year of revival on college campuses. I believe that in my heart. I know that we say that every single year, 2007, 2006, 2005, the year of revival on college campuses. But I am standing here in faith today, believing that a generation is arising that's saying no to everything else and saying, God, we've got to have you. I only have a minute here, but I want to read a story. I hope I have it. Gosh. Never mind, I don't have it. Oh no, that's not it either. Well, here's the story. A man named Dick Eastman, a general in this nation of prayer. In 1971, he has a vision where he's walking up to a structure, a wooden frame, gigantic structure, and he realizes it's a house. And over the house is this phrase that says the firehouse. And he's a little bit confused, so he walks into the, to the house and he meets a young man. He says, there are young people that are filling the house. And he says, what, what does this mean, the firehouse, he's in this vision in 1971? He says, what does this mean, the firehouse? And the young man says, in every single community, there's a firehouse in every city. And they're called upon to put out fires. And in the vision, this young man is talking to him and he's saying, what we're doing here is we're calling this a firehouse because we want to see fires started in every community. He says, this is our ministry. We start fires. I'm believing that the year of 2008 will be the year that the fire starts on college campuses, 2,600 college campuses in this nation. I'm friends with other ministry, prayer ministries, like Campus America, which is related to 24-7 prayer, Pete Gregg in the boiler room. They're believing that by 2010, there will be a sustained community of prayer on every single college on every single college campus. And I'm saying here today is we're leading this thing called the Luke 18 Project. Just to give you a little bit of information, I know we got to go, carry. Just to give you a little bit of information, we're starting something called the Luke 18 Project. And our vision is that by 2010, there will be a sustained prayer furnace on 2,600 college campuses in this nation. From coast to coast. From border to border. Believing that the only pathway that God has given to us is shut everything else down and gather together. Whether it's in two or three... Whether you gather in two or three, God's there in the midst of us. That so we've tried all of our evangelistic programs. We've fought every skirmish. We've fought every evangelistic battle, but we're losing, we're still losing a generation. And I want to offer to you guys a bold, innovative idea for 2008 to 2010. Start prayer meetings on your college campus. Start prayer meetings on your college campus, whether it's two or three or 50 or 100, whether it goes day and night, night and day, or it's meeting consistently week after week after week after week. One of our leaders here at the International House of Prayer had a, had a dream not that many years ago. And in the dream, there was a, this giant with a shield and a spear. And it was trying to kill, our, to kill this leader. But in the dream, he knew that there, he could hear in the room across the way, the prayer room, people worshiping God, people praying and interceding, and he can hear that. And he lifts up his hand, and it's a shield that the energy of the uh, of the prayers of the saints in that region are acting as a shield, as is hiding him from the wrath of the enemy. And all he has in his hand is this tiny little hammer, and this giant's ten feet, twelve feet tall, and he jumps up and he hits him. He comes back down, and in the end, the, 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 the giant is trying to kill him. He jumps back up and hits him again, and he keeps on hitting him. And it feels like he's not doing any damage. It feels like he's not doing anything to this giant. And all of a sudden, he hits him one last time. It looks like the giant's going to go still strong, still going. All of a sudden, he hits him one last time, and the giant falls. And the Lord thunders in the dream and says, Which hammer blow mattered most, the first or the last? You have to ask yourself this question, young people. Whether it's two or three who have gathered in His name, God's going to be there in the midst of Him. Which hammer blow matters most, the first one or the last one? It's sustained prayer communities. It's not just doing it for a month or two or for 40 days. I'm believing that 2008 to 2010 will be a marked season where we saw a groundswell of prayer begin to fill this nation. On our college campuses. I have a vision for 10,000 leaders to be resourced, equipped to go and plant these prayer furnaces to start fires. Can I give you guys a new job description? This is now your ministry. Start fires. This is your ministry on your college campuses. Start fires. If you guys will just stand with me. I, don't, I know I don't have much time. But Father, we say 2008 is the year that fires are started on college campuses in this nation, God. On our high school campuses, in our local churches, Father. In the marketplace, God, we ask for 2008 to be the year of a movement of prayer that spontaneously expands all across this nation. God, I ask you, college students, raise your hand. God, I ask you for these college students... That you would immerse them. That you would baptize them into a life of prayer, God. That you would make them leaders. That you would give them bold vision of prayer on their college campuses. That they would join themselves to other brothers and sisters and give themselves to prayer and fasting, not just for a day or for a night, but until God. Until God. Until God! Until revival hits the college campuses! Let that be your cry in your heart! Until God! Who knew in the, for you college students, gathered together in upper rooms all across your dorms and all across the, all across your campuses! Terry in Jerusalem! That was the final words of Jesus to his disciples. He said, Terry in Jerusalem! Who knew whether it would be ten days or two years or ten years. They tarried for ten days and suddenly out of heaven. May 2008, God, be the year of the suddenly out of heaven, Father. We ask you for UCLA, God. We ask you for the University of Texas, God. We ask you for OSU, God. We ask you for Harvard, for Yale, for Princeton, Father. We ask you for college campuses, God. I ask you, raise up generals even from amongst this midst, God. Generals of intercession, of prayer, of fasting, God. I ask you to take the weakest. I ask you to take the most frail, God. The most timid, Father. I ask you to grant them boldness, Father. Grant them boldness, God. God, we say whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, God. So I ask you, Lord, to baptize these students, God, in confidence. Father, I ask you beyond my mere weak words today. Father, I ask that you would speak to them through dreams, God, through visions. Lord, I ask you that ministries, movements would be inside of this room. We ask, Lord, that even this day, it would be a birthing center for movements of prayer and fasting in this nation, God. We ask You for movements of prayer in Texas, in California, God. We ask You for movements of prayer today. The spontaneous expansion of prayer furnaces all across this nation, God. On college campuses, on high schools. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I can just...